Hey, greetings everybody. My apologies for the long delay with this episode. I know I'm a week late, but this is pretty tough stuff. Chapter seems, you know, otherworldly, and it's hard to get a handle on it, and really had to rethink how I wanted to approach this. So let me first start off with a joke that I told when I preached this past. It's one of those jokes that's got a lot of truth to it. It's a list of things that pastors never hear in church, right? For example, pastor, we'd like to send you to this Bible seminar in Hawaii. Ask any pastor, you never hear that, unless you're a pastor in Hawaii. Um, or how about this one? I was so enthralled with your sermon today that I didn't notice you went 15 minutes over. I never hear that. No, no one ever hears that. Or how about this one? Nothing inspires my faith journey quite as much as the annual stewardship campaign. Woo! Right? There's a lot of things pastors never hear from their congregations. And most folks would include this. Revelation's too easy. Can we move on to something harder? Yeah. Look, in 325 AD, the church, the, the newly legalized church, held the first all-church council at a place called Nicaea. The main purpose of that council was to discuss a controversial new theory or theology proposed by a dude named Arius. And they wanted to condemn Arianism as heresy, and well, it is. But as a sideline, while they were together, they discussed a, a couple other smaller issues, and one of them was discussing the books that would be considered canon, that were actually scripture, that were officially recognized by the church, right? And there was a, a small number of books that, that they wanted to talk about whether or not they should be considered canon. 22 of the books that we know from the New Testament, 22 of 27, were not really up for discussion. They were widely accepted by the church, and everyone already considered them to be canon. But five of the 27 we have now, as well as a few that, that are not in that list, were discussed. And I'm telling you this because Revelation was actually on that list. Now, there were three common tests for a book to become canon. First, it had to have apostolic roots. It had to have a close connection to someone considered to be an apostle of Jesus. Second, it had to be widely accepted by the church, and that was a big deal. And third, it had to express a consistent theology with the rest of Scripture, right? Now, here's an example. Hebrews was on the list because no one really knows who wrote that book. The early church eventually just threw up its hands and assigned it to Paul, but it wasn't Paul. It's pretty obvious. But its content is so good. It was so widely accepted. And because it was so widely accepted, in the end, the council decided to keep it, even though they weren't sure who wrote it. Again, all of this so we can talk about Revelation. Here's the problem with Revelation. Everyone knew it was written by John, one of the great apostles. And since everyone knew it, everyone accepted it. The problem is, even though its content is consistent theologically, it's scary as hell. And the church leaders were worried about actually reading this book in church and, and scaring folks. My point is, this has always been a difficult book. It's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. It's difficult. And I think 4th century Christians struggled with it too. You with me? There's just so much baggage attached to the traditional interpretations of this book that, that we struggle with now, it makes it even more difficult. And the worst part is many of those traditional, what we'd call traditional interpretations, have their roots in mystical visions more than scholarly textual study. And once we all grew up with that traditional interpretation, I think a lot of scholars have tried to make it work from a scholarly point of view, instead of just approaching the text without a prejudice to see what it says, right? 
So remember, God has called us to love him with our whole selves. That includes our minds as well as our hearts, right? So we don't want to fear the Bible study. We want to do the Bible study. And Revelation is one of those books that just requires a lot of work. And we're going to do it, right? We're going to trust the Holy Spirit to guide us as we do that. And as we move into chapter 9, and into these first two woes, trumpets 5 and 6, things get a little bit tougher, and it's a little bit easier for us to fall back to those traditional interpretations. So let's just work through those trumpets the same way we've been doing the rest of the book, right? Now, before we do that, I want to review two important things we need to keep in mind as we proceed. First, don't forget we're not picking an ism, right? This, this is not about premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism. You can choose any of the isms you like and still be a Christian, right? The purpose of our study is not to advocate, defend, refute, disprove any of those theories, Our goal is just to study and understand the text, period. Second, we have to keep the first four trumpets from chapter 8 in mind. Remember, chapter 8 isn't a new section. It's a continuation of the trumpets. These are trumpets 5 and 6 that come after 1, 2, 3, and 4. Remember that each of the trumpet blasts thus far has brought judgment on creation, right? One third of the earth's ability to support life was impacted in some way. A third of the trees and grass, a third of the sea and sea life and the ships, a third of the rivers and springs, which is our supply of fresh water, and a third of the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But so far, the impact to humankind has been indirect. Humans are affected by the damage done to creation, but the judgments themselves are directed mostly on some aspect of creation. Now, as we move into the woes, trumpets five and six, we see God's judgment begin to directly impact human beings. And remember that as we jump into chapter nine. Now, the fifth and sixth trumpets are closely related to each other and paint a terrifying picture of God's judgment on the world. In the first, we see a swarm of demonic locusts released from the bottomless pit. And in the second, a demonic cavalry is released to wipe out a third of humanity. This is scary stuff. And if we didn't have chapter seven to fall back on, I'd probably pee my pants. So as we dive into chapter nine, I want to start with a brief overview of what happens in this chapter. And then I want to set a little context for us by looking back to an Old Testament prophet and the book of Joel, okay? All right, so chapter 9 is broken down into two main parts, the fifth and sixth trumpets. First, the fifth angel blows the trumpet, and John sees a star not falling from heaven, but that had already fallen from heaven to earth. The verb used is in the perfect active participle, and I know you all know what that means. (laughs) Look, this isn't a grammar test. The idea of this ancient Greek text is this tense gives the feeling and idea of an action that's completed, but has continuing results into the present of the speaker. It's a really special tense. And we try to pay attention to it when we see it, right? This thing has happened, but that act continues to reverberate, right? That's what this tense basically means, right? So um, that's the tense of this verb that it had already fallen. Now, I mention that because using that tense here gives this passage the distinct feel of intentionality. This isn't some random accidental effect. I think we're meant to see that whatever's happening here isn't just chaos. This is a God-ordained event. He ordained this to happen and scheduled it, right? He unleashed it when it was time. Now, the fallen star was given the key to the bottomless pit. And the star is obviously not a literal star, but an angel or other supernatural being. It says he, not it, opens the shaft. And so much hot smoke rises from it that it darkens the sky and blots out the sun. Then out of the smoke come these locusts, which are given 
authority, and the word literally is authority, like the authority of the scorpions of the earth. They're told not to damage the growing things of the earth, like traditional locusts would do, but to torment those who are not sealed, those who are not God's people. And the torment's limited, however. They may not kill anyone, and it will only last for five months. Right? Now, the locusts are described in, in kind of a lot of detail. They look like armored horses, cavalry, literally horses having been prepared for war. And they have faces as human faces and crowns on their heads. And they have hair as women's hair and teeth as lion's teeth. They had breastplates of iron and their wings made such a racket it was like the sound of many chariots on their way into battle. Their scorpion-like power comes from their tails, which are like scorpions' tails. Their king is the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon, which in Hebrew means destruction. And in Greek, it is Apollyon, which means destroyer. Then we get the sixth trumpet. When the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, John hears a voice from the four horns of the altar speak to the sixth angel. The voice tells the angel to release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. The four angels who had been held ready until this time were released, and their mission was to kill one-third of humankind. The number of their troops in this cavalry is technically 200 million, and the seer points out that he heard that number. Now keep in mind that in Greek, this is kind of a weird description of the number. It's uh, myriads of myriads. It's myriads of myriads, right? It's a myriad, technically, a myriads in Greek is 10,000, right? So this is 10,000 times 10,000 times 2 in the way the Greek is applied. But in traditional Hebrew writing, when you double a word, it's meant to emphasize that word, right? So like we're used to talking about the holy of holies. The reason they call it that is because the adjective holy is used back to back. And what it expresses in Hebrew is most holy place. A lot of ancient languages have that kind of thing where you double a word and it gives great emphasis, right? You have a myriads of myriads that's doubled here, right? And so technically you could do 10,000 times 10,000 times two, which gives you 2 million. But the sense of this number is it's a lot. It's an uncountable number. This is just a huge army, okay? So their mission is to kill a third of humankind. And this is pretty crazy wild stuff, right? It's not surprising that the early church feared this book and didn't know what to do with it. It's difficult. Now, I want to talk for a few minutes about the book of Joel. I know that's kind of a departure, but I think Joel has some interesting and related details in it. When we can see some of the imagery that we read in Revelation in the Old Testament prophets, it gives us sort of a connection to the prophetic tradition, the Hebrew prophetic tradition. So let's talk about the book of Joel. Commentators have mixed opinions on the book of Joel, but remember what prophecy is, right? It is not a prediction of future events, but it's a message from God to God's people. Now that often includes a prediction of future events, but that's not its purpose, right? And like many Old Testament prophets, Joel is very likely chastising the people of God for their sins and warning them of punishment to come. It's amazing how many of the Old Testament prophetic books do that very thing, right? So he talks about, projects ahead to, the coming of the day of the Lord, which is a blessing for the faithful, but a day of doom for the unfaithful, right? Now, we're not really here to analyze Joel, but there are some passages I think are interesting and relevant to our discussion of Revelation 9. So let me compare a couple passages so you can see what I mean. First, I want you to listen to Revelation 9, verses 7 to 10. This is about the locusts that we see in the fifth trumpet. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. 
On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots, with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is their power to harm people for five months. Now, listen to Revelation 9, 17 to 19. This is about the army to follow. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. Wow. Now, I want you to compare what I just read to Joel chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, and the description of a great army to come as punishment on unfaithful Israel. Fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, and like war horses they charge. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. Each keeps its own course. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each keeps its own track. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city and run up the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the window like a thief. The earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, a couple interesting things here. First, the description sounds a little bit like what we hear in Revelation. The second, it sounds like the army Joel's describing is the swarm of locusts and how they resemble an army, right? Now, in Joel chapter 1, he talks specifically about the coming of this devastating swarm of locusts. And then in chapter 2, gives this description of this army, or a thing that looks like an army. Third, notice the devastation that they bring and how that devastation seems to be judgment on the unfaithful, which all reminds us of Revelation 9, or rather, Revelation 9 reminds us of Joel, right? Now, I'm not saying that John copied Joel, right? That's not the thing. What I am saying is that the idea of a great swarm or plague of locusts, especially demonic locusts ordained as judgment on an unbelieving world, resembles an army in so many ways. Now, it's, it's hard to imagine what John was seeing here. Right? How can we understand these two trumpets? Right? How does Joel or, or all this stuff help us understand the trumpet? I mean, that's what we're really trying to do. Well, I'm glad you asked. First, I want to talk about a few things regarding locusts. Now, I, I live in Arizona. We don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not a farmer. I don't farm. I'm not an expert on locusts. I don't know from locusts. I know locusts are scary because they eat everything. But let's, let's look at a couple locust-related facts and, and see how that's relevant here. So first, I want to think back to chapter 8 and the obvious nod to the plagues of Egypt in the first Exodus, right? We saw how similar this is to in the book of Exodus. There were a series of plagues, and then God's people were taken on this journey to a promised land. And how the description of the day of the Lord seems to be similar, that there will be judgments on the world, and then God's people will be taken to a promised land, right? So we have that obvious nod. 
We can't ignore that nod. Exodus 10 talks about the plague of locusts. So it's easy to see that nod back to Exodus continuing in chapter 9, right? Second, should note that the dry season, apparently, which is locust season, is five months long. It's also interesting that the life cycle of a locust is also about five months long. So Revelation 9.5 says they were allowed to torture people for five months. This ordained plague was limited to a five-month span, which I think is not a coincidence. It's the natural span of locust time, right? People in that day, people who deal with or dealt with locusts would have understood that. Third, even though John's description of the locust seems otherworldly, it really isn't. I was surprised to find this out, but there's an old Arabian proverb that describes locusts as having a head like a horse, a breast like a lion, feet like a camel, body like a serpent, and antenna like the hair of a maiden. And the German word for locust literally means hay horse, while the Italian word for locust literally means little horse. The imagery of these locusts in Revelation seems foreign to modern folks who aren't farmers, but compared to other ancient sources, it really does sound familiar. And finally, I want to talk about their king, Abaddon. In the ancient Near East, locusts were, obviously, strongly associated with destruction. In every ancient culture from that part of the world, the locust was a symbol of destruction and everyone was afraid of them. In Hebrew, the name Abaddon literally means destruction. The locusts having destruction as their leader kind of makes sense, right? John also adds the Greek name Apollyon, the active participle of the word Apollumi, which means to destroy. Now, I've always wondered why he needed to add that name, since the word essentially means the same thing in Greek as it does in Hebrew. Well, here's something interesting. Apollyon in Greek comes from the same Greek root as the name Apollo, which was one of the most important Greek gods. Plus, the locust was one of the minor ancient symbols of Apollo in Greek myth. He was known for a lot of things, but one of them was being god of the plagues. So the inclusion of this name has a really strong nod toward Apollo, right? Like John is making a connection to the false gods that are worshipped in the places where God's people now live. And we could also take this a step further. Both Nero and Caligula mimicked Apollo in their role as emperor slash deity of Rome, but Domitian, who was probably the emperor when Revelation was written, actually claimed to be the incarnation of Apollo. So could we actually see John's horde of demonic locusts being led by the emperor of Rome? It's an interesting thought. So, look, people have tried hard to come up with an explanation for what John was seeing in this chapter. I think they often try to do that in a bubble without the ancient historical context in which this document was written. And I think that leads to some wild ideas. I've heard people say that they think John's locusts are actually uh, helicopters and a giant massive modern war that he didn't know how to describe, and that it was this war and the chaos of that war that destroyed a third of the earth. I don't know if it's necessary to make those leaps here. Let's let's keep the trumpet plagues in the trumpet plagues. Trumpets five and six have to be connected to trumpets one through four. We also can't miss the nod back to Exodus or the historical context of the destruction caused by locusts. And I think these two judgments are all about destruction and the damage of God's judgment moving from creation toward humanity. There is a progression here in the description of the events leading to the day of the Lord, right? A third of the vegetation destroyed, a third of the sea destroyed, a third of the fresh water destroyed, a third of the heavenly lights destroyed, humanity tormented for a time, and then a third of humanity destroyed. 
It's also important that we don't take the power and planning of this plague out of God's hands and make it simply a human act of aggression. This is a divinely ordained eschatological situation. And for first century folks, locusts are scary enough. I don't need helicopters, right? Whew, all right. This is a lot of stuff to wade through, right? But, but our goal is to just try to hear the text and understand what's in the text. In the context of the Bible, the culture, the genre, the history of these people, try to hear it the way the first hearers heard it. Try to understand the Holy Spirit's message to us. There's a couple things we got to think about. First, it's important we don't interpret chapter 9 in a bubble. It's not by itself. Remember, chapter 9 wasn't chapter 9 until more than a thousand years after it was written. It simply flowed out of the passage before it. Makes it easier to connect trumpets 5 and 6 to trumpets 1 through 4 without a chapter break in it. So we're depicting additional trumpets in a series of trumpet judgments so we can't disconnect the trumpets. There's a consistent sense that leading up to the final destruction of the day of the Lord are these these events that affect a portion of every part of our world. And it's clear that these judgments are intended to get the attention of an unbelieving world, right? It's clear by the comment that it doesn't get their attention that its purpose was to do that, right? And so we know that this is God's last effort, like the plagues, to put his power on display, to say, you need to follow me. One last shot at it, right? I also want to point out something from chapter 9. Chapter 9 doesn't tell us when this will occur. It doesn't tell us how many days, months, years, weeks the devastation will last. We get the five-month period of time for the locusts, which is an obvious nod to the lifespan of a locust. But I don't think it tells us what the time frame is or when we can expect this. I believe it does tell us three very important things, though, and three things that I really want us to focus on. If you're going to take something out of this weird chapter, think about it this way. First, it's very clear that nothing that happens in chapter 9 is out of God's control. That's important. The text suggests quite clearly that these events have been ordained. God planned them to happen at a very specific time. The angels are set in place and held in waiting until the day comes. The army has been waiting for this event, but was not released until it was time. This means this isn't a random chaos, and it's not a knee-jerk reaction. God doesn't just get mad and lose his temper, and it's not the natural course of nature coming to an end. These are planned in time judgments released exactly when and how God has ordained, and all of them are under his control. Second, please don't forget chapter 7. In fact, go back and read chapter 7 as frequently as you can, because it's looking better and better, right? Remember that these trumpet judgments in chapter 9 are leveled at an unbelieving world. Those who have rejected Jesus as Lord. God has sealed his people against that day. So they will not be destroyed. Much like the plagues of Egypt where the Israelites were spared, right? God's people have been sealed and will be spared from that day. And third, I find it utterly exasperating that nothing that happens through these six trumpet judgments inspires the unbelievers to repent of their sin and turn to God. Some folks cling to their idols and their sins with such ferocity that nothing will make them bow before the Creator. Unfortunately, we will experience some of that in our lifetime, right? Try as we might. We may all know folks who just refuse to accept the truth. So, what we get out of this is the the fact that this is not random chaos. This is the judgment of God preceding the second exit. God is in control and everything that happens on that day is under his authority. And his people, us, are sealed against that day. 
we will not be destroyed. So we don't have to fear. Now, we also have to brace ourselves that there may be people we know and care about who just refuse the love of God, right? But it doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to tell them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to spread that love. In fact, I think God's intention for us is to let Him worry about who will and who won't accept, and for us to live our lives, to follow Him, and to share His love whenever we can. That's our job. So let's do our job. All right, I'm going to pray for you right now. And again, I, I keep reminding you this, but I want you all to be safe. Right? So don't close your eyes if you're driving, right? Keep your eyes on what you're doing and let your hearts pray with you. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this book. And this is a, this is a difficult chapter. This is difficult imagery. All of this is difficult, Lord. But when we look at it, when we step back and see it from a distance, we realize that what you're doing, what your judgments are intended for, is to display your power leading to the day when you take us to the land you have provided for us, that promised land, the new earth you have set aside, and that you have sealed your people against that day. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for your immense power, your love for us, your protection of us. Lord, it's been a weird year, and we need your love and protection more than ever. So please be with us all and guide us and guard us. Help uh, Help our whole world, Lord, manage through these crazy times. Remind us that you are in control and be with us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Wow. Right. Chapter 9. Um, I will see you next time. We'll dive into chapter 10 and things really don't get easier from here on out. So brace yourself. Peace. Peace.